Please turn with me in your Bibles back to the first chapter that we read together in the Old Testament Scriptures, the prophecy of Isaiah, and we come in our exposition to chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 22. It opens with these words, the burden of the valley of vision. What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up? to the housetops. We heard this morning that faith is the evidence of things not seen. We noted that that includes things past, present, and future. And among other things, it includes God's word of prophecy. So when he is speaking both to his church in the present, his word to them, as well as his word which predicts and foretells the future, he is unveiling what we would otherwise be unable to see. Christians see into the future when others cannot because they see through faith as it is exercised in the word of God that has been revealed to us. So here the Lord's bringing a word that speaks directly into their present circumstances. And he describes things and says things which they are evidently not seeing. And then he foretells to them things that are yet uh, to come. And there's a shift here, as you can tell, because we have for many chapters now uh, been going chapter after chapter, God bringing his burden, his word of prophecy to a wide array of different people groups, different nations. And here he is now turning to Jerusalem described as the valley of vision. He's bringing his word to his own people. And for Isaiah, this is especially poignant because Jerusalem is his home. It's where he's from. It's where he lives. It is the streets that he walks and so on. You know, in all of the previous prophecies, he's prophesying about Ethiopia and Egypt and Tyre and, you know, all these places, Arabia and so on. But the prophet is in Jerusalem, right? He's not traveling to Cush. He's not traveling to Egypt and then proclaiming to them the word of God, similar to how Jonah did when he went through the streets of Nineveh. No, Isaiah is actually standing in the city of Jerusalem and proclaiming God's word. And you think, well, isn't this a bit odd? Because the word is directed uh, to Edom or to Ethiopia or whoever, but it's not actually being taken to them. So what, what, do, we, what do we make of, of all of this? Well, it's actually no different throughout the entire history of the world. What is Jerusalem? It is Zion. What is Zion? It's the mountain of God. It's, it's actually the mountain that's described in Isaiah 2, where eventually all of the nations are going to flow like a river up Mount Zion to be taught of the Lord. And it speaks of millennial glory uh, in that text. He's standing upon, upon Mount Zion, and he is proclaiming the word from God's seat, the place of God's promised presence. And so you think of the present hour, the present day, ministers uh, preach in the streets, true, but the bulk of their preaching is confined to the church 
And so ministers climb into their pulpits and they proclaim, thus saith the Lord, and they speak uh, the word of God uh, to those in front of them and speak also to the nation and to the church broadly and so on. But they're not in the White House. They're not in the halls of Congress on Capitol Hill. They're not in the governor's mansion or other such places. And yet the words being proclaimed in the church to the world, you think, well, you know, the, the governor isn't listening to this sermon. I mean, certainly the administration at the federal level aren't, aren't tuning in to listen uh, to these sermons. What's the point? This is God's way. He's proclaiming his word from and amidst his, his own people. There's another element to this, and that, that is this. The Lord is bringing his word through Isaiah to other nations previously in the context of his own people for Judah's own benefit. Now, this is important. God is saying to Edom, thus saith the Lord, or to Egypt, or, or Tyre, whoever, thus saith the Lord, for the benefit of Zion, for the benefit of Judah, who is hearing it in the streets of Jerusalem. Judah is to hear, Jerusalem is to hear what God is saying to the nations and receive it themselves and tremble and to learn from the word that they're hearing that they themselves need to repent and that they themselves need to turn unto the Lord. And so that helps us then understand the transition into chapter 22. Because now the Lord is turning from those nations, his word to those people, which Jerusalem has heard, to speaking to Jerusalem themselves. You think of how our Lord brings out this in Matthew chapter 11, when he says in verse 22, But I say unto you, speaking to Jerusalem, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, at the day of judgment than for you. Well, we're going to hear about Tyre when we get to chapter 23, but you see the point with regards of all of this. And here's the problem. Jerusalem has heard all of these things and they did not repent. They did not repent. Instead, they continued, as you see in the title of our sermon, in careless impenitence. Judgment coming. And they are careless in their impenitence. And they are more culpable than any because they have more light than any and therefore are more responsible than any. And so we'll consider then this theme of careless impenitence under three points. First of all, sorrow over a careless church, verses 1 to 7. Sorrow over a careless church. We've read verse 1. And here we have the Lord speaking to Jerusalem, this, the valley of, of vision. And it's terrible. You know, there's, there's people that are, are, um, are left in horrific circumstances that are full of stirs and tumultuous city and yet a joyous city. And then it speaks about how their leaders have been fleeing. All thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in thee are bound together, which have fled from far. So here we see Jerusalem is 
we're told, going to be scattered like, like birds, you know, like a bunch of pigeons that are scattered. They're fleeing, they're fearful, and so on. And the problem is this. It is God who is doing it. Verse 5. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. God has come to visit his people. God has come and he is in Jerusalem. He is in the church and he is bringing days of trouble and of perplexity. He is bringing chastening and discipline to those who have strayed, who have, who have refused to bow their knee and, and hearts to him. Now you think to yourself on one, on one level, chastening is a blessing, and you're right. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. You know, those, the Lord chastens those whom he loves, scourges every son. It is to be a true son to receive the rod and chastening of the Lord. And so it is a blessing on one, in one side and not to be despised. But that Hebrews 12 passage also tells us that it is very grievous, that it is painful, that it is afflictive, and so on. And so that the, both of these things are true simultaneously. That which is extremely painful and grievous is also intended by God's love as, as a blessing. We sing about this in Psalm 94, actually. Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. Other places, Psalm 119, for example, brings out this, this same theme. The blessing, however, is found especially in the profit that comes from it, our profiting from the chastening. So don't despise it, but rather come under it, be, be taught of it, you know, bring forth the peaceable fruits of exercise, exercise yourself under the chastening of the Lord. And here's the problem with Jerusalem. The Lord has brought his chastening. And they did not profit from it, which is a reminder to you that discipline is not automatically fruitful. It's not as if like a Roman Catholic view of the mass, just going through the motions infuses grace. Experiencing chastening does not itself produce grace. And that is true for parents when you're spanking your children. It's not as if, you know, the spanking in itself is, is efficacious. It's true with regards to the censures of the church, that in themselves they, they produce, produce it. No, they did not profit from it because they did not heed it. They did not listen to the Lord. They did not come under it. Instead, in the midst of pain, they wanted peace. And the route they took for peace was to build up a false security, a false sense of security, to kind of gather to themselves a sense of stability and of strength 
so that they could get peace, as it were, and, and to be released from, from the pain and so on. But what comes out especially here is not just the carelessness, but Isaiah's sorrow over the carelessness. I mean, you read these words in verse 4. Isaiah says, Therefore said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. These are my people. I'm not now bringing the word of God to those that are Arabians. I'm not bringing the word any longer to Egypt. These are my people that the word is coming to. And you see the depth of sorrow that he has. He says, don't try to comfort me. Allow me to give full vent to all of my sorrows. Allow me to weep my eyes dry. Do not try to prevent it. Why? Because anything else would be savage. It would be heartless. How could he not be broken under the word of God in seeing the carelessness of God's own people and seeing the judgment that's going to come as a result? This is not something that can be taken without grief. Some of you will remember the words of McShane to Bonar. Bonar was writing to McShane and telling him that he had, you know, preached on hell. He had preached on hell the previous Sabbath day. And McShane wrote back to him and said, I hope you did not preach it with dry eyes. Right? There's something here in terms of the grief that should be associated with these things. It's true of, of ministers of the gospel, as I've, I've noted here. And it's, you know, I brought this up last week uh, in, in the previous passage, the, the weight that the, the prophets carried, right? It, it wasn't, there was, the people would see them and they would hear them proclaiming the word of God, but there was so much the people didn't see. They couldn't see the burdens that were being carried behind the scenes and all of the vexation and the depth of turmoil that they experienced. And, and so this, this week I was thinking further about that and it was, it was notable to me, you know, we, we come to the, the prophecy of Daniel and when I was a child, you know, there was this thing where you're, you're told as a child, you know, dare to be a Daniel, all right, we get it, the lion's den and so on and so forth. But it's quite different, that, that whole expression smacks us as a bit off when you think, when you read Daniel itself. Why? Well, you, you think for a second, he is, he's in his youth, right? The, the, the fragility of youth. And they come rolling in, Babylon does. He's ripped out of his mother's arms. He's taken from his home. He's taken from his community. He's taken from the, the, the church from the ordinances. He's taken from all that's familiar, the, the, all of the, 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 the trails that he himself had created, you know, all of the paths that he was familiar with, the food. He, he, he's, he's, he's removed. He's taken to a foreign place, right? New language he doesn't know, new religion, new societal norms, new everything. Trauma 
massive trauma to him. You know, the, the overwhelming trauma that he experienced. And then they make him a eunuch with all the physiological, hormonal, you know, uh, effects that would have had on him as well. And so he has all these things, but it's the word of the Lord that comes to him. And so you get to chapters 10, 11, and 12, and I actually, I'm not going to give them all to you here, but I've gone through and collated them my, my, myself. And here is all of this description where D Daniel is being given prophecies and there's consternation and he's, he's afflicted and he's weakened and he's terrified and he's, you know, it's the, it's the picture of, of a broken man, of a, of a trembling man. He's trembling, you know, before the angel who comes. He faints as one who is dead. And for chapter 10, uh, 11, and maybe it's even chapter 9 through chapter 12, you have all of these insertions about the experience of the prophet, all that he's bearing as a consequence of this. And in the midst of it, of course, we have three different times. God brings his word uh, to Daniel and, and, dis and says, oh man, greatly beloved. You know, here he is, he's being told, fear not, and so on. He's, strengthening, he's being strengthened. He's being told, thou art beloved of God himself. Right? So there's, here is Isaiah, back to Isaiah. My point is that this, is, this, this stretches across uh, all of the, the, the ministries of, of the prophets. There's no detachment with Isaiah. There's not a, this isn't a formal affair where he's given a responsibility, goes, executes the responsibility mindlessly, heartlessly, thoughtlessly. There's not some sort of professionalism. There's no detachment here. There's sorrow over a careless church. You think of the application of this to our own day. You know, people can rant and rave about bad doctrine, you know, bad standards of Christian living, bad worship, bad, you know, the church in America, all its woes and problems and so on and so forth. How many tears accompany that? How much trembling in our innards? I speak to myself and to you. How much do we tremble in ourselves? at a careless church? How broken are we? How much are we able to say, I will weep bitterly, labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. These are my people, the citizens of Zion. This trickles all the way down. It's true for parents as well, isn't it? I made reference to parents and discipline a few minutes ago. Parents can go through the motions we all have and be untouched, unaffected, all the while dealing with an immortal soul that will never die. We need to sorrow over carelessness, our own and others. You think of the promise that God gives in another prophecy of how he'll mark those who weep secretly over the sins of God's people. And so there's sorrow over a careless church. Secondly, there is the sin of impenitence, verses 8 to 14. The sin of impenitence. Here is Jerusalem, and they will not repent. They will not repent. They'll talk about all sorts of things and do all sorts of things, but they won't turn to the Lord or come under his chastening. Think of Ahaz. 
Now there's Ahaz, and you know, in Second Chronicles chapter 28, you read, for the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about uh, how he gave, uh, took a portion of the house of the Lord and, and so on. You know, it's worse than that because in Second Kings chapter 16, verses three and four, he sacrificed one of his own sons to a pagan god like Hezekiah's own son, Manasseh. They wouldn't repent. Instead, as I said, they're creating false security. Here's the Lord. He's, he's calling for weeping and mourning and boldness and girding with sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying of oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat, drink, and drink for tomorrow we shall die. This is a description of revelry at the very time that there ought to be bowing under the Lord's hand. Instead, it's a party. They're engaged in partying in the face of judgment, in the face of chastening, right? It's as if, it's as if they're trying to escape reality by creating an alternative one and trying to make everything happy and pleasurable in order to drown out what was in fact coming, in order to ignore what God himself had said. Well, this is not unique to Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah. We know that because the New Testament quotes this passage, doesn't it? You think of, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, For after the manner of men I fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantageth me? If the dead rise not, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, take away the doctrine of the resurrection. Take away the reality of the judgment to come. Take away the thought of eternity in heaven and hell. The inclination is going to be to party, to escape, to drown out the noise. Of, of God's own word. And there's much of that in our own circumstances, right? It's true of the church today. It's true of the nation today. It's true of individuals today. We don't need to sober up and be serious about the things of God. We don't need to take heed to what his word is saying. We don't need to exercise our souls. We don't need greater spiritual mindedness. We don't need the fear of God. We don't need all of these things. What we need is a party. We need to show that we can have fun. And that there's so much to, to enjoy. Let's eat, drink, and drink for tomorrow we shall, shall die. Right? It's escapism, if you will. And so the Lord is speaking to them. The sin of, of impenitence. He speaks, you know, Sennacherib, of course. We're going to hear more about him when we get into the 30s of Isaiah. He's, he's, he's the, the chief Assyrian. And he comes and invades Judah. And of course... He captures Lachish, which is like southwest of, of Jerusalem, uses that as the staging ground. We're told that Hezekiah at the time is shut up like a bird in a cage. Uh, we're told that, there's, that Jerusalem itself is, is a disaster. Remember back at the very first chapter, verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. 
as a besieged city. And of course, we know, we've already heard in the previous chapters, that Jer Jerusalem will not be sacked by uh, Assyria. The Lord promised that it would not happen, and it did not happen. And you, you know the narrative when Sennacherib comes, how that does not happen. But nevertheless, they're under this, this, uh, this fearful state. And what do they do? They look anywhere and everywhere for protection besides the Lord. And so that's what's described here in this section. Verse 8, he says, And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Children, you remember this? Back in the days of Solomon, he built an armory in the, in the forest and, and, and stockpiled uh, weapons and so on. First, uh, First Kings chapter 10 verse 17, and he made 300, uh, verse 16, and King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went in one target. He made 300 shields of beaten gold, three pound of gold went to one shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. So this is the cache, the stockpile of weaponry. He's saying, what do you do in this circumstance? What do you do under the threat of Assyrian invasion? You're looking at your weapons. You're thinking, look, we've got that stockpile. We've got all these weapons. We can rely on the arm of flesh. We can utilize all that we've prepared. We're well prepared for this. We've, we, we, we prepare way ahead of time for what's coming and so on and so forth. We're going to rely on our own resources. And then he says, in verse 10, he says, And ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. So now they're going to rely upon thick walls, the thick walls of Jerusalem. This is, this is actually spoken of in the narrative as well. Second Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 5. Also he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Milo and the city of David and made darts and shields in abundance. So you come back to Isaiah. He's saying, look, you're, you're breaking down the houses in town in order to take stuff, in order to build these big, huge, thick walls. And you think if we can get the walls thick enough, they'll be impenetrable. Nobody can get us. We'll be fine. We can hold out. We'll be safe. And then the third area that they look for uh, protection is water supplies. You see it in verse 9 uh, when he says, you have, you have seen also the breaches of the city of David. There are many. We've noted that. And ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. Verse 11, ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but ye have not looked unto the maker thereof. So this is describing that event which is told in both Chronicles and Kings where they, they stopped up Kedron, right? They stopped up the water supply at Kedron, which ran through the land. And then what did they do? They went to Upper Gihon, and they diverted the waters of Upper Gihon through a tunnel, a secret tunnel, a conduit, which then ran through the west side of Jerusalem. And, and so there was a reservoir there was a, a supply, a, a continual supply of, of water on the west side. And so they're like, look, nah, they can't even get us there. We'll be able to stay hydrated. We have water, you know. And to be honest, the, the, the feat that they, they did was one of 
pretty significant human ingenuity. It was quite the engineering um, affair. Apparently it's 540 meters long. Uh, it still exists today. So it's 540 meters long, thereabouts. Um, excuse me, I think 1,200, um, well, 540 meters long, I think, and about 100 cubits deep, so underneath the rock. And uh, they built this water supply that was, that was brought to them. So the point is this, right? They're looking to their own resources, thick walls, an arsenal that they've, that they've stored up, and their water supply, right? These they've prepped really well in terms of this massive invasion. But the problem, the problem is the sin of impenitence, verse 11, ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. You're not looking to the Lord. And this is so often, whether it's the church is in difficult times, we need a spark of, of, uh, of, of creativity. You know, we can solve this. Let's rearrange things and do things differently, you know, in order to keep the church safe or to grow or to whatever else the case. I mean, nations still do this as well. We have an arsenal that's unparalleled. We've got defenses that are unparalleled. We've got supply of resources like water and food that is unparalleled. This will keep us. This will be enough. You know, again, Psalm 20, you know the words in verse 7, where we sing, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Save, Lord. Let the King hear us when we call. So the sin of impenitence is their refusal to look to Jehovah. The one who we heard earlier in the chapter is in the midst. The Lord God, who is actually bringing all of these things to pass. It's a word in season, isn't it? For all of us, individually, collectively, as a congregation, as the church, as the nation in which we live, and so on and so forth. All the bluster and all the gusto and all of the, 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 the staging and so on and so forth that takes place, church and state, in our present hour, utter foolishness. Rather than judgment beginning at the house of the Lord, the church repenting and confessing sin on a regular basis and turning to the Lord and going back to the book and seeking his face, rather than the nation and its leaders turning in prayer and crying out to God, to have mercy upon us, we look to anything and everything but the hand and arm of the Lord himself. What are the consequences? Verse 14. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged, shall not be expiated, shall not be atoned for from you, Till ye die, saith the Lord God of hosts. Where does the sin of penitence, despite all the play and partying, where does the sin of penitence take us? No salvation. The Bible does say, repent or perish. 
Those are the options. Repent or perish. That's God's word to the nation. That's God's word to the church, as we saw in, in Revelation 3. It's God's word to individuals like you. Repent or perish. He says, surely this iniquity shall not be purged. And so we have the sin of impenitence. Thirdly, we have sovereign intervention, verses 15 to 25. Sovereign intervention. Here we see the, a fall and a rise. The fall, two parts, the fall of Shebna through verse 19, and the rise of Eliakim, beginning in verse 20. So here is Shebna, verse 15, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, go, get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house. So here is Shebna, who's a political leader of some note, significant position. He's a steward, secretary, treasurer. He's given responsibility over the house, but he is a worldly politician. He's a worldly, not a God-fearing politician. And he is interested in anything and everything but prayer, but this sin of impenitence. Later on, you're going to hear that uh, he's, he's the one interested in a treaty with Egypt. He, he's, he's pushing behind the scenes this idea that, look, we can deal with Assyria by forming an unholy alliance, entangling alliances with Egypt, covenant-breaking, dishonor to God, and so on and so forth. That's a means to this end of, of deliverance. In other words, he's a traitor. He may seem a loyal son within Jerusalem, but spiritually he's a traitor to the Lord's people. And what's he concerned about? It says, well, what hast thou here? Whom hast thou here? Whether thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher here. Is him that hewed out a sepulcher on high and so on. Here is Shebna, and he's concerned about his legacy. He's concerned about his name. He's concerned about gathering glory to himself. Everybody's partying and he's planning for something wonderful for himself. He's got this glorious tomb that he is, he is preparing. What does the Lord tell him? Verse 18, he will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. This pursuit of glory results in shame. It's going to bring him into disgrace. All of his plans for the future and all that he's going to achieve and the legacy that he's going to leave and so on, all of those plans for the future are dashed to smithereens by the Lord. And God says, very, very graphic imagery, isn't it? Shebna, children, think of it. The Lord says, I'm going to pick you up like a ball. And I'm going to wing you into a far country. That's exactly what happened. The Lord picks up Shedna like a ball and tosses him into the captivity of Babylon. And Shebna dies in Babylon. No name. No fancy sepulcher. No glory as a forgotten fool. Forgotten. 
His name and glory were buried with his body in a foreign land. Evidently, he's, he's demoted at some point. In verse 19, I will drive thee from thy station and from thy state. Shall he, that is the Lord, uh, pull thee down? And here we have the rise of Eliakim. Eliakim is going to replace him. It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy, thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of, of Judah. Now, this may have taken place through, I don't know, the instrumentality of Hezekiah, who, who ends up seeing through things, and perhaps Shebna's demoted and then later carried off to Babylon and so on. Eliakim's put in his place. But he's given huge responsibilities, right? Verse 22, he's given the key to the house of David that's laid upon his shoulders. He's given all the resources of, of the kingdom. We're told that he, you know, what he opens, no man will shut. What he shuts, no man will open. We're told that he'll be secure. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Here is one who is given honor. Unlike Shebna, who's given disgrace. The Lord bestows honor on him. And yet, all of that, apparently Eliakim himself, under all of the glory that this involves, slips, hangs on him all the glory of his father's house, and description of all the resources that he's given. In verse 25, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, speaking to Elikiah now, shall the nail that is fastened in a sure place be removed. And be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off. So Eliakim himself is, is eventually brought down. But what does this do? What does the prophecy of Eliakim do? Just like the prophecy of every prophet, just like prophecies about all the priests, just like the prophecy of all the sons of David and the kings of Judah, they all are a springboard that points to one greater than themselves. And the New Testament proves it. We would be right to draw all of that out of the text. But we have it reinforced for us because the New Testament does it itself. And so we read in Revelation chapter 3. And there we're, we read of, of our Lord the Messiah, the Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Christ is speaking. He is speaking to Philadelphia, and he says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Language drawn from the words of our text in Isaiah 22. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. The key of David is given to him. And it is at long last safe in the hands of the Messiah. And he is the one who does open and not the whole world and the devil and all of his hosts and everyone else. None can shut it. 
And when he shuts it closed, there is none in all the world or outside of it that can ever open it. He is the one who accomplishes all of these things. The Lord provides for his church a better than Eliakim. One who deserves and receives all of the glory of his father's house and all of the glory beside. He is made altogether glorious. Think of how he mediates this in the context of Zion and his church. We're told that the the elders have a role, don't they? They in, in Matthew chapter 16. We're told in verse 19, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the this is the reign of Jesus Christ. This is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ mediated through the ordinances that he himself has established. Chapter 18, verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, my friends. It is such a source of spiritual refreshment. You hear about the sins of impenitence, very disheartening. The carelessness of the church, very disheartening. You hear about the likes of the Shebnas of the world and their role even within the house of God, very disheartening. You think about Eliakim and all the potential that was lost, very disheartening. But the text drives us to what is most heartening. It drives us to, the, to Christ himself. Here we gather this afternoon in our small little place as a small little band of people under the throne of the one who holds the key of David in his hand. Under the one who says to us and to others, I can open a door for you and all the world can never shut it. That's what he says to Philadelphia. I've opened a door for you, Philadelphia. I've kicked it wide open and all the gates of hell cannot shut it. How comforting this is to think that he is the one who is sovereign and he does have all the resources, right? Beyond the treasure in Jerusalem. He is the one who has given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. That's everything, all of the power everywhere, all the authority everywhere. And the Lord Jesus Christ has limitless resources as the God-man to do all of his holy will and to accomplish all of his holy ends for the good of Zion, for the glory of his people for her benefit and blessing, for her bounty. And so where do our eyes look? We're not looking to programs and we're not looking to people and we're not looking to our own wit and wisdom and we're not looking to human resources of any kind, any shape and size. We're not left looking to any of those things. You know, be done with them. You know, put them away out of your heart and head as well as out of your hand. Say no more. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For what account will ye make of him? Isaiah 2. What have we to do in trusting in chariots and princes and the legs of a man and horses and so on and so forth? No, we're brought here. We're brought before the, 
the glory of Jesus Christ himself, to say he is all in all. He's first and last. He's the beginning and the end. It begins with him. It ends with him. It's all him. And so that's what we want. We want Christ. We want him to reign over us. We want him to rule. We want to submit to him. We want to repent and turn to him. We want to believe and lay hold of him. We want to serve him. We want to promote his glory. And we want to do so in dependence upon him. Following his resource, following his own appointed word. Maintaining his own appointed ordinances. Doing things his own appointed way with the strength and grace that he himself can give us, penitently, believingly, hopefully, joyfully. It is Christ that we need. The one who has the key of David. The one who opens and no man shuts. The one who has all power and authority. So may the Lord help us, deliver us from carelessness, deliver us from impenitence, Give us Christ, all of Christ, and nothing but Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we do pray, give us the Lord Jesus Christ. We will have this man to rule over us with all of our hearts. We will, O Lord. We desire to submit to him. We desire to turn. We desire to repent. We desire to believe. We desire, O oh, gracious God, to no longer de depend on the resources of man. O oh, Lord, give us eyes that look to the one who holds the key of David. Give us, O oh, Lord, to depend on him opening a door that all the world could not shut. Give to us more of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name.